Hi, I'm Elissa Nicole Trust, an actor and writer living in New York City. Hey, I'm Lauren Schaffel, an actress and producer also living in New York City. And, and we, we are Positive, Positive Creativity, Creativity Podcast. Positive Creativity is a podcast where we speak with writers, directors, and other artists about what they're working on, what's inspiring them, and how they stay positive in this industry. We are looking to shed light on all of the wonderful projects happening in New York and beyond. Our goal is to give creative artists a platform to talk about their work and to give theater and film lovers the opportunity to learn about more creatives and projects. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you with support from Ahava Theater Company. Robert Ariza made his Broadway debut in the Deaf West revival of Spring Awakening. He is most recognized for his work in the Chicago Company of Hamilton and the national tour of Les Miserables. Apart from his work in theater, Robert is also a singer-songwriter who plays piano, guitar, ukulele, and harmonium. Welcome, Robert. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. We are so excited to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you both for inviting me on. Thank you for joining us. And by the way, listeners, um, I will be calling Robert Rob because we're friends, but in the industry, he is Robert Ariza. Don't get it wrong. Just kidding. Mostly, I let people call me whatever they want, and I'll respond. (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious. Um, So, Robert... We always start asking this this kind of bigger, open question. What's currently inspiring you? Ah, what is currently inspiring me? That is a tough question because, to be honest, since the pandemic began, it has been very difficult to find inspiration the way that I used to. Um, I feel like, especially artists, right, we, we all have kind of been functioning on this low level of anxiety throughout this entire experience, uh, losing a lot of us, losing our livelihoods and, and, uh, just trying to figure out how to stay afloat (laughs) so that by the time the industry comes back, we're still ready to play the game. Um, for me, uh, it took me a while before I started to feel creative again in, in this time it took me like pretty much a few months, I would say maybe three or four months before I, I actually like felt ready to explore my creativity again. Uh, in addition to being an actor, I'm also a songwriter. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something that I like to do kind of more as a hobby, but it's been a, a, what feels like a lifelong hobby because it's kind of always been there for me as a way to manage my feelings and my emotions and kind of make sense of everything going on around me. And what's interesting to me is that in the past, um, when I've been really sad or down about like, you know, my love life or something like that, um, I found it very easy to access my creativity and to find inspiration in those dark times and write about it. And so you would think that that would apply to this current situation, but I found that it, it really, uh, was not the case. I, I felt very numb in some ways and like dried out. Like I, like I didn't really have anything to say, even though obviously there is so much to say in this time, but I just couldn't find the words. I couldn't find the sounds, couldn't find the music. 
And that was kind of scary, you know, for the first few months of the pandemic. And um, at some point in the summer, I just remember it kind of like all came flooding out uh, in the middle of the night, like, like at like four in the morning or something, like I was awake and I was like, I hear music. <laughs> and so uh, in my apartment, we have a, a room that's like kind of designated. This is actually at the room that I'm in right now. It's, it's like our creative space. And so we have like our instruments in here and a little like office set up. And so I came here in the middle of the night and I plugged in the headphones into the keyboard. So I didn't obviously wake the neighbors or my boyfriend. <laughs> and I just started to kind of like, play some music and write and I wrote a song in that in that time and it was like kind of an emotional middle of the night because it had felt like it was so long since I had found uh inspiration so <laughs> that question uh after unpacking that currently I would say that I am finding inspiration in the middle of the night <laughs> because Actually, oddly enough, it has happened like two more times where in the middle, early wee wee hours of the morning, I have woken up in my sleep and heard music. And it's so bizarre. And it's like, I have to capitalize on the moment because if I don't, I will not remember it in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That is so cool. Um, yeah, there's like, no, it's such spontaneity, right? There's yeah. no planned moment when I think for some people, maybe there is a planned moment when you're like, the morning is when I like get my creative things done. Right. Um, but for you, it's that's so cool that it's like, whoa, all right, wake up call, literally. Let's go. Yeah, to an extent, it's always been that way. Like my my songwriting has been that way in the in the sense that like I, I don't it's very rare for me to sit down and say, I'm gonna write a song now. <laughs> you yep. know, like I have to have the urge. Like I ha it has to be the spark that I'm like responding to, that I'm like, oh, I am feeling this surge of whether it's emotion or feeling or uh, inspiration and I, and I have to get it out. Um, but, you know, to happen always in the middle of the night is kind of an odd thing, <laughs> but it's actually good too, that it's happening that way in this time, because obviously I have no schedule, so <laughs> I don't have to get up at any certain time. Um, so that's been kind of a cool thing to, uh, to explore in this time. Um, and I, I still will say like, it's still not the same as I used to operate in normal times. Uh, but I'm glad to see that it hasn't completely disappeared. Hmm. Well, I'm glad to see that too, because you're, you have such a gift. You're such an incredible singer songwriter, obviously, as well as actor. Thank you. But I will say that I've been amazed at everything that artists have been capable of creating in these times. But one thing that we're not talking about as much, especially the longer we're here in this situation, is how challenging it is to create in this very painful moment. It's painful. It's traumatic. It's stressful for so many reasons. And I'm not a person, I don't think any of us are, who believes that creativity thrives on um, being unhappy and, uh, you know, like that depressed artist sort of trope, like, right. <laughs> no, isn't really real. And we know that our creativity and our gifts and our artistry thrives when we're doing well and healthy. And so 
I I mean, I personally struggled a lot to create at the beginning of the pandemic, and now it comes in waves. Um, similar to what you described, sometimes I can't do anything for several days. I didn't act for the first like six months, really. Um, I didn't have that much motivation to act without being in a room with other humans. And then it got to a point where I just realized I missed it and I needed to, I was getting rusty and I wanted to get back. And then as far as writing, um, there were times when I'm working with collaborators and like just couldn't do it and would be so hard on myself, but then had to remind myself that this is a really horrific and yeah, just painful time and that it's okay to not be able to produce. Absolutely. It's a traumatic time. You know, I know that that word carries so much weight, but I really believe that for so many of us, especially artists, I've said before, like this is a traumatic time. We were the, among the first of the industries to, to close and we all know and recognize that we are going to be some of the last to open. And because there really is no end in sight, and it just seems like as we head into the winter, it's kind of getting worse, you know? It, it's a scary, scary feeling. And yeah, there's absolutely that fear that like, oh my gosh, am I going to remember how to do what I do when I get back to it? You know, like I was in the middle of rehearsals for this new show at The Public when the pandemic or when the shutdown began, I should say. And, you know, we were about to head into tech. We had just like fleshed out the show because, you know, because it's a new show, there's a lot of uh, changes being made and stuff in the rehearsal room. And so, you know, just as we were starting to finally feel like we had a show to put on a stage, then we were, it was taken away from us. And, you know, in in the beginning, I I will be the first to say, like, I was one of those people that was not well informed about COVID-19. And so I was like, ah, it can't be worse than the flu. Like, this will be we'll be back in two weeks you know I was like well, great a little like break from everything which actually at the beginning felt really nice because I had been going kind of non-stop for a couple of years now you know I didn't really have many breaks in between my jobs which is a blessing but can also be very taxing on you know my instrument and yeah so the first couple of weeks I was like this is great I get to relax and kind of just take a break and breathe and enjoy my new apartment that I had just moved into and then and then it kind of just, the, the deadline kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And it just, yeah, it just like the, the, the floor fell from beneath us. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, as you were talking, that's so, that feeling of the floor falling out from under us, that just resonated for me so much. Yeah, I had a similar thing where I was working part-time at a museum. It was a similar thing where it's like, it's story t- a storytelling museum and it's um, the Tenement Museum. Shout out to them. Um, but yeah, it was like, oh, great. We get like a, a two-week, you know, paid vacation. This is great. This is going to be fantastic. And then I'll come <laughs> back refreshed. And then, yeah, when it just kept extending and extending and so much confusion and fear and unknown of how this whole thing was being handled. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. Well, I hope that you are able to eventually go back to, to doing that show again at the public. Like I'm putting good thoughts into the universe that Thank that you. is going to, to happen again. Thanks. It was on my calendar. I was going like May oh my gosh. or something like, yeah. End of May. So weird. 
Yeah, that's so crazy to think about. <laughs> wow. So you had mentioned that you had been going, going nonstop for a couple of years. And I know that you are an incredible actor and have done some really amazing work. Um, can you sort of tell our listeners about your story of becoming an actor? Okay. <laughs> um, well, what's funny is I'm from New York. I'm, I was born and raised in Queens. And, uh, you know, so a lot of people, when I tell them that they're like, oh, so you, of course you're in theater, you've been around theater all your life, which is actually not true. Um, growing up, I pretty much stayed in Queens. Like that was my life. We didn't really venture into Manhattan. Um, I think I remember maybe once that in my youth that we made a big trip to go and it wasn't to see any show on Broadway. I didn't even know what Broadway was growing up. That's how far removed my family was from entertainment. Or so it seemed because I found out years later that, you know, there were nights where my parents would leave me and my siblings with a, with a sitter and they'd go see Miss Saigon, Fan of the Opera, Cats. And I was like, wait, you never thought that the little boy that was singing in the living room to an invisible audience would maybe want to be uh, in the theater? <laughs> um, but all that aside, uh, when I was um, going into high school, I, you know, I, I, I have always been uh, musically inclined and I've always known that I wanted to sing. That, that was kind of a constant thing since growing up. But I didn't really know, obviously, in what capacity that meant. Uh, and so for me, when I was looking for a high school to attend, I wanted to go to a performing arts high school. And um, at, the, at the time, I wanted to be a recording artist. Like, I wanted to be, like, in a boy band. I wanted to be, like, NSYNC, you know? And so I thought, you know, yeah, I want to go to a performing arts school. I want to learn how to sing. And I want to, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And so I ended up uh, auditioning for the LaGuardia Arts High School program, which is the fame school, as people know it. Uh, and I got in for voice, and I actually had no idea what I was getting myself into because it was nothing that had to do with recording music, at least not initially. Uh, it was pretty much an opera program. It was a classical voice program, and I'd never, ever pictured myself singing classically. But that's, that's what I was thrown into my freshman year and, and actually really, really loved it. And the summer before I started high school, um, because I knew that I was going to be going to this uh, performing arts program, my mom actually had made me aware of this community theater that was happening at my uh, middle school. And she was like, you know, they're having auditions. You should go. It's like singing and dancing and stuff. And so I was like, okay, yeah, sure, why not? So I went to the audition, sang a song, did a little dance combo. And then the next day after the audition, I was actually going on a two-week trip with my family to Rochester to visit some family. And I got a call the night of my audition, and it was the director saying, hey, we loved your audition. Thank you for coming in. We'd love to give you a call back. And I was like, you did call me back. Because I had no idea what a callback was. <laughs> and so he was like, oh, no, we want you to come back tomorrow and, and audition again. And I was like, oh, but why? And, and he was like, well, because we want to see, you know, we want to see a little bit more of you. And, and I was like, well, I'm actually going to be going on a trip tomorrow for two weeks. And he was like, yeah, we noticed that on your audition form, which is why we wanted to call. Is there any way that you 
don't have to go. And I was like, no, we're going in the morning. (laughs) He was obviously so confused. I was so confused. And uh, he ended up saying, listen, um, how about you go on your trip? And when you're done, come back and come to the theater and and we'll figure something out. And I was like, okay. And so I was like, I guess I got it. I don't know. (laughs) I went on my trip. A couple weeks later, we got back and I showed up at rehearsal and he was like, oh, hey, so just sit down here. We're going to perform the opening number and uh, you can just watch. And if this looks like something you want to be a part of, then then we'll put you in. And if not, you know, you can go home. I was like, okay. So it, they were doing Footloose, um, the uh. musical. And they did the opening number, which I have to say, actually, the Footloose opening number is kind of bop. So... <laughs> um, it was really, really amazing. My eyes must have been like just completely open and my jaw on the floor because I remember that moment so vividly. Like I remember like this like tingling sensation and like I wanted to get up out of my seat and jump on stage with them. And I had no idea what I was doing, you know? And so afterwards he was like, Hey, so do you want to be a part of the show? And I was like, yes, get me on there now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was actually my first foray into musical theater. And I had a great summer working on the show and, and I, you know, uh, at the end of the summer, we performed it. And, and that was that. And I thought, oh, this is just something that I'll do every summer now. Like, I still didn't know that this was a thing that people did for their lives. Mm-hmm. And so then I went to LaGuardia. I started my classical voice training. And then my first year at LaGuardia in the winter, um, they were doing the school musical was West Side Story. I'd never heard of West Side Story. I'd never seen it. And so uh, my family all went together to go see the show. And LaGuardia, because it's a performing arts high school, uh, they put on really, really uh, high caliber shows for a high school. So imagine my surprise after (laughs) being a part of a little community theater production with a very low budget to then going to this performing arts high school production of West Side Story. And I was floored. You know, I, I... just couldn't believe what I was hearing. The music was, was amazing and, and the dancing and, and just like the spectacle of it all. And by the time we got to intermission before the show was even over, I remember thinking, this is it. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And it was like complete, you know, shifting of gears. Like I, I was like my dreams of being in a boy band and being, you know, some sort of, uh, famous recording artists were completely like out the window. I was like, no, this, this is it. And from that point on, I just became a musical theater nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Fast forward to uh, graduation. Then I uh, ended up actually attending Queens College for the first three years of my undergrad uh, career, so to speak, um, because I couldn't afford to uh, really attend any other programs that were out of state or anything. And my parents were very against me applying to any programs that were out of state. And so... I ended up at Queens College and they don't have a musical theater program, but they have a theater program and a classical voice program. And I was double majoring there actually. So I was kind of like making my own musical theater program or trying to, and like taking dance classes from the dance department on the side. And by the time I reached the beginning of my third year, I I just kind of felt a little fed up because I knew that I wasn't getting the training that I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I reapplied for transfer actually to uh, the university of Michigan and I got in with a scholarship. And so I was able to go move out there and, and go to school there. And it was everything I could have hoped for and more. Um, and then I spent actually three more years there. So I did a total of six years for undergrad, which uh, again, was something I never 
never intended. <laughs> you know, wow. it was so I remember my parents thinking too, like, you're not going to finish in four years. How are you going to, you know? And it was like this like taboo thing, but you know, just to say to all the listeners, it is okay to take some more time in your undergrad. It is worth it <laughs> to figure out what you want to do. Um, anyway, so after graduating from the University of Michigan, I moved back to New York and I began my professional career. And um, I started working regionally a, a few months after returning to New York. I, I booked um, a production of Les Mis in Florida. And then I was doing this new show called The Theory of Relativity uh, at Goodspeed Musicals. And then after that, I was doing a production of Spring Awakening upstate at the Hangar Theater in Ithaca. And all of that kind of culminated, you know, like those three jobs were pretty much back to back, which was really, really amazing and lucky for me out of, you know, my first year of college. But then by the time the end of the Spring Awakening contract was coming, I had heard about the production that was happening with Deaf West Theater in LA and that it was going to be transferring to Broadway. And Spring Awakening actually was a huge uh, show for me when it came out during my high school years. I, I remember um, one of my classmates at school, actually, Lily Cooper, was in the original cast. She played Marta. And so, you know, it was this big deal in our school, like, oh, my gosh, she's going to be on Broadway. And it's this new show called Spring Awakening. And it's really edgy. And it's like pop rock. Um, and I remember seeing it. And I was like blown away. You know, like I remember listening to that cast recording on repeat. And I was like, oh, gosh, I want to be a part of this show so badly. And I remember they had an open call one time when I was in high school. And I went. There were, like, thousands of kids around the block lined up. And uh, I ended up, you know, getting a callback and going to my callback and then not getting it. And I was so disappointed. And then the show closed while I was still in high school. And I was even more disappointed. Or I think it was actually my first year out. It was uh, while I was in college. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm never going to be able to be in Spring Awakening on Broadway. And then sure enough, here comes this Deaf West revival, like a short six years later. And so I, I heard about it and I, and I told my agents that I wanted to be a part of it. And they said, well, you know, it's, it's already cast because it's been being developed out West, but they are looking for swings. And so I auditioned to be a swing and it was kind of this whirlwind process. It was like all the auditions happened within a week. And then we started rehearsal the next week. And wow. yeah. I, for those of you who don't know, the Deaf West Revival Spring Awakening was uh, the half of the cast were deaf actors. And so the show combined ASL and speaking and singing into one beautiful, beautiful show production. And so as a swing, I was covering four of the male tracks and I had to learn how to sign because wow. that was a huge part of the show. And um, so a lot of the rehearsal process was me kind of going home, watching these YouTube videos of how to sign and how to sign and then practicing with the, my fellow deaf actors in the rehearsal room and just like memorizing, memorizing, memorizing all these signs for the show. And it was one of the hardest things I think still to this day that I've had to do in my career, but it was so amazing, so worth it. And I got to fulfill my dream of being in Spring Awakening on Broadway, which was so full circle, so surreal. Um, actually one, one other funny uh, aspect to that is that while I was at Michigan, my first year there, the one of the musicals that they did was Spring Awakening. And I got to play Hanshin in that production. And Hanshin was actually the role that I debuted when I went on for the first time in mm -hmm. Spring Awakening on Broadway. So again, very, very full circle, which was really cool. Um, yeah, after, th after that, 
I did some more regional work and then I did uh, Spamilton off Broadway for a short time. Mm-hmm. I played Lynn Manuel Miranda as Hamilton, which was <laughs> really, really fun. And then shortly after that, I actually um, I went on tour with Les Mis and I was in the ensemble and I was under studying for Marius. And I actually got to take over the role for three months or almost three months because sadly enough, actually, our actor who was playing Marius literally broke his foot. <gasps> no. yeah. It was really, really scary. And, and I, I obviously felt so terrible. He was a friend of mine. And, and you know, I, I, it's, you know, every understudy or swing always wants to go on, right? That's, that's kind of the point. We want to be able to go on for these principal roles. But we never want it to be in a situation like that where it's at the expense of someone else's health or something. But, you know, he, he took the time that he needed to get back to back in shape and, and back to his health again. And, and so during that time, I was lucky enough that the creative team had asked for me to take over the role, which was an honor and another dream come true because, believe it or not, Marius was the first dream role I ever had. Ah. Another full circle moment, which was really, really, really cool. So... Uh, I did the national tour of Les Mis for about a year. I moved back to New York uh, in the fall of 2018. And a couple months later, I actually booked Hamilton in Chicago. Mm. And so I had to move out to Chicago for a year uh, on kind of like a whim. You know, I, the audition process was rigorous. I had actually been auditioning for the show like over the course of like two years. Um, and it was kind of like, you know, sporadic, like they'd see me uh, for a few weeks and then like months would go by and I wouldn't hear anything. Then they'd see me again for a few weeks and then months would go by where I wouldn't hear anything. Um, so it felt almost in an odd way, like they were waiting for the right time, you know, like they, I knew that they liked me because they kept on bringing me in, but they were like, we don't really know where to put you yet. Mm-hmm. And then finally the time came where they found a place for me in the Chicago company and I was in the ensemble uh, playing James Reynolds, which is a really, really oh. fun role for anyone who knows the show. And I was understudying Alexander Hamilton, <laughs> which was even more surreal because when I first saw the show, I remember thinking obviously that this was, this was totally up my wheelhouse and it's something that I, I want to be a part of, you know, with the incredible diverse casting that they, they had. And I actually remember thinking I identified more with Lawrence Philip, you know, John Lawrence, uh, Philip Hamilton, that track in the show, because, you know, it was kind of like similar to Marius in the sense it's like this young character, a little bit, you know, of an ingenue, I guess you could say. And um, they actually, uh, for a long time, did not want to see me for that role. And it was really frustrating to me because I was like, but I'd be so good. (laughs) Um, But then they started to see me for the role of Hamilton. So I was like, oh, I guess they, they see this which is, was kind of a cool thing to realize that they saw something more in me than I saw in myself. Mm. Um, so that was like something cool that I had, that I got to work towards. And then, you know, when I actually finally got to play the role in the Chicago company, it really was, it felt like this huge kind of accomplishment. Like I'd gotten to the top of the hill, you know? Um, yeah. So I did that for a year and then the Chicago production closed, which was actually the first production of Hamilton ever to close. And I moved back to New York in January of this year. And I, I was actually, as I said before, in rehearsals for this new musical by Tom Kitt called uh, The Visitor, based on a beautiful movie from 2007 of the same name. And it was at the public theater and everything was going great. 
And then the shutdown happened. (laughs) Man, man, oh man. Wow. My first thought was, you have had an incredible career. Hearing the story, this journey over the course of many years and not without its kind of roller coaster, you know, kind of ups and downs. But I'm just, I'm really blown away and just really, yeah, inspired to hear how, as you said, getting to the top of that hill. Yeah. Uh, what a journey. Yeah, it, it, it was, and it has been a crazy journey. And I've been very fortunate. I know that, you know, this business is, is really cutthroat. And as a Latino person, as a gay person, you know, like it, it, it has definitely had its challenges from time to time. Uh, you know, getting into certain rooms that I didn't think I would be able to get into, or if I did get into certain rooms, I had to be like twice as good as some of my fellow auditioners because, you know, there was always this kind of like, well, this tokenization that happens, you know, in the industry, which is really unfortunate. But at the same time, I I recognize that I have been um, very lucky to have had so much work and to have had the opportunity to be in a, in a part of a part of a lot of shows that are really well received. I know that that's another tricky thing about this business is that sometimes, you know, you, you get this dream job and it's on Broadway and it's in the show that like maybe lasts for a month, you know, which is so terrible. You know, it's so sad that that is something that happens, but it is, it's just part of the, the business of show business. So I've been very fortunate that that has not been the case for me. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of seeing you in some of the shows that you mentioned because, you know, I'm your biggest fan. And, <laughs> and to sort of, I guess, then go into the next thing we wanted to talk about, which was you um, you had recently decided to run for AEA delegate in a unique way <laughs> in that the by. Bi- POC delegates for AEA decided to run together in order to stand for your shared vision of a more diverse, equitable, and representative union and theater industry. So we would really love to hear and would love for our listeners to hear about what inspired that decision to run and what are some of the changes that you personally and you all would like to see in the union and in the theatrical industry at large? Sure. Uh, So actually, you know, AEA or equity governance was never something that I ever thought that I would want to be a part of. Not because I did, I looked down in in any way or anything like that. It just was like, oh, I'll leave it to people who know what they're doing. You know, it always seemed like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's someone else's forte. Even though AEA governance is made up of people within the membership, actors and stage managers. So I think you know, in a little bit of a selfish way, I felt like out of sight, out of mind, I'll just do my thing and people will always be there to kind of figure out the details, you know? Um, and I come, I came to find during this pandemic that uh, it's actually really, really important for our membership to get more involved. Maybe not necessarily on a governance level, but to be more aware. And that was the really big shock that I, that I found, not, not just about uh, others, but about myself, about how little I knew about how our union was governed and how it operated from within. Apart from just okay, I have to pay my dues. They, you know, they negotiate the contracts, or, or you know, between the the producers and the theater owners. So my decision to run was not inherent 
it was actually someone called me out and not in a bad way, but my friend Lauren Viegas, this incredible, incredible Latina actress who I had worked with on a reading before um, and who sits on Equity Council, actually. She she tagged a bunch of her uh, BIPOC friends who were within Equity's membership and said, they are, they are nominating delegates. Like, you guys should absolutely run. Like, there's no reason not to run. If you, if you want a better union, like, this is how you do it. And I was like, it kind of was like a little fire under my butt, you know? Like, I was like, oh, yeah. Like, and, and on top of the fact, too, that, like, you know, I didn't have anything to do in the summer. I was, like, kind of waiting for something to happen, which is another problem, right? It's like, you got to go find your opportunities. And so I was glad that someone like Lauren had presented this to me. And the more I kind of looked into it, I was like, yeah, this seems absolutely like something that I should do, especially as a BIPOC member of equity. Mm-hmm. So because one of the things that you may notice or people may notice upon knowing who is governing our union right now is that it is comprised of almost entirely white voices which again, that is just part of the system of racism that exists in every facet of our country. And, you know, this is actors' equity. This is supposed to be a theater union. Again, like you said, like inclusive and diverse, that's something that they champion. And yet here we are with this lack of diversity and inclusion on our own representation within our union. So that was definitely a huge part of me wanting to run simply just to diversify the voices of our leadership. And uh, one of our fellow BIPOC delegates, Ryan Morales Green, who I have yet to meet in person because, you know, that's just how everything has gone these days. Everything is over Zoom and Slack. Um, actually, he, I had, we had never met, but he reached out to me in, in a Facebook message and, and asked if I would be willing to meet and gather with a bunch of other nominees, the BIPOC nominees for delegate to kind of see if we could find a way to n- not necessarily run together, but to uh, amplify each other. And so I was like, yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. And he did that legwork of finding <laughs> just about every BIPOC nominee that was running uh-huh and gathered us all together and we had a big old zoom meeting and we we like talked it out we it was really a really i like i don't think i'll ever forget that moment where i was just like looking at the screen and it was just like the color on the screen you know it was so beautiful wow. to see all those faces and be like wow like it's so rare that you get to be a part of a process where that's who you're surrounded by as a bipoc member anyway um Anyway, so that meeting went really well, and we talked about the goals for our group, I guess you could say. And, and a lot of the, the ideas that were being thrown out was, was to support the idea of amplifying each other as opposed to running on a slate, which we didn't want to necessarily all run together because we didn't know each other. We didn't all know each other. You know, we had just met. We didn't know who, you know, prioritized which ideas or which changes that they wanted to see within the union. We just knew that everybody's voice mattered. And so 
it was important that people looked at us and took us seriously and, and really gave us the attention that we deserved. And so we created the, the group and, and, you know, what we have come to find is that, yeah, obviously we have, we are all along the same lines for how we view the changes of our union in many ways, whether it be, you know, how the union deals with uh, harassment and sexual harassment in the workplace, whether it be how the union deals with transparency, which has been a huge issue that people have been talking about, especially during the pandemic, because a lot of our members are high and dry without work and don't know what is happening behind the scenes to get back to work. And so it's been really, really amazing. And, you know, we, it was a very long or it seemed like a very long election process. And when it was finally over, we were overjoyed to see that just about almost every single one of us that were running in that BIOPOC group got elected, Hmm. Um, which was really, really inspiring. And it was cool to see too, how quickly we got to work. It was like, we didn't waste a second. Everyone was already writing bills that they wanted to submit for the national convention that was coming up next year. And everyone was having these, you know, all these sidebars, these different uh, conversations about what do we want to do about this? What do we want to do about this? And it was like, so amazing. And then it became very overwhelming at the same time, Mm -hmm. because we, I went from, at least me personally, I went from kind of like a ghost day to day, kind of just figuring out what am I going to do today? What am I going to watch today? You know, (laughs) having like all these things to think about and work on. And I actually found that I, in addition to the current political climate and the election happening nationally, um, I was very overwhelmed. My mind was overwhelmed and I felt a little bit of a burnout, Hmm. you know, because along with, uh, with everything that I just mentioned, obviously there's been the new, or I should say the reawakened reckoning of race in America and racism in America, I should say. And that has been something that has been on my mind just about every single day, uh, of this pandemic. And, I've been, you know, donating to different, different causes and trying to amplify different causes. And it's been, uh, a worthy cause, but also a very taxing cause emotionally and also just mentally. And so all of that kind of culminated and, and, uh, at the end of September, I was like, I feel like I can't operate at my best right now because I feel so spread thin. Mm -hmm. And so I took a step back and my boyfriend and I went on this little road trip to the Midwest. We visited uh, his family in Michigan and my brothers in Wisconsin and our friend in Chicago. And then we went back to Michigan and then back to New York. And you know, we, we just got back on Monday of this week and it's been really, really nice to kind of like take that break, which I think is really important for all of us to recognize within ourselves that we are human, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and while it's easy to say like, Oh, well, we're not doing anything right now. You know, like I'm unemployed. Like I have so much time. You should, I should be able to do all these things without a problem. It's not realistic because in our normal lives, right. When we do have our jobs and stuff, we have schedules and we have times that we are free that we dedicate. We say, I'm going to spend this much time working on this and that's it. You know, I'm not going to 
continue working throughout the night because I don't have to get up at a certain time the next day, right. you know? And so I feel like it's very easy to get um, caught up in the momentum of, of everything and, and want to try to fight all the battles, but then it's very easy in that way to get burned out, which I, I experienced firsthand. And so I am just now starting to kind of get my feet back on the ground and say, okay, I'm ready to, to do some more work. And I've been very grateful to see that in my absence on the, the for, for, forum that we use to communicate the delegates is on Slack. And it's been really great because, uh, you know, Facebook can get a little dicey with all of its, you know, <laughs> yep, yep. it's a flawed social media platform. Yep. There's um, a reason there's a show called The Social Dilemma. Exactly. Nope. So it's been yep. nice to have like a place that is like kind of almost strictly business where we can really, really get work done without getting distracted. Um, and, and like I was saying, um, I was really honored to see that in my absence in the past month that they, you know, they, they picked up the slack, so to speak, and they, they continued to forge ahead. And Ryan, who I mentioned before, who was the one who gathered all of us has done a great job of, um, organizing the slack and making sure that, uh, he does, he types up a daily digest of all the different conversations happening in different channels. So that way people who do step away to take that time for themselves can come back and easily get caught, caught up. Mm. Um, yeah. And so I think it's going to be an exciting, uh, convention in, in the new year. It'll be the first of its kind for our union, which is also exciting because we get to set the precedent of how we want to be heard. And just judging from the way that all of us have been working together. It's, I feel like re-inspired about our union. Whereas in the summer, I was feeling a little bit kind of disconnected from it and unserved in a, in a way. Now I feel like I am part of the change, the positive change that's coming to our union. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, there's so much to, to respond to that. Cause wow. Um, but thank you for being so honest and open about that. That burnout is something real. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I just want to want to thank you for being so so open about sharing that experience and how crucial it is, even in a pandemic, to find time to kind of get away. Um, yeah. Whether that be you know getting a car and driving on a cool trip to the Midwest or just taking a you know, a walk around your neighborhood, like whatever small thing you can do to find that, that self-care totally. is so crucial for, for all artists, but yeah, especially in these times. Yeah. Yeah. Lauren, do you remember, um, well, I guess all of our listeners, by the time your episode will come out after this other episode I'm about to reference comes out. So on Whitney Cusack's episode, she's an amazing, um, producer and filmmaker and, um, she's a black woman and she talks about on her episode about burnout and how she sort of equates it to exercise, physical exercise and how not every day is leg day. <laughs> you have to take a break. And that kind of self-care is investing in your long-term investment, I guess, into being the change that you want to see. Like if you burn out and you stop, then you're not going to be contributing but if you give yourself a little bit of a break and then you come back to it with fervor, then you can continue on the path. Yeah, I think about how uh, in choir, when I used to do choir in schools, 
you know, like the choir directors would often say like, uh, the breathing, you know, we don't all want to take a breath at the same time. We want to take staggered breaths. And it's that same idea. It's like, yeah, you know, we, while I'm away taking time for myself, someone else will be at the forefront. And then when that person needs to back down, I'll be at the forefront, you know, and it kind of is this, this ebb and flow, uh, that we all have to do. We all have to do, especially because we are faced with, you know, now referencing the national election, we are faced with so many like potentially life altering changes coming November 3rd and after that. And it's important that we are all sharp and ready to fight the fights that we need to fight and ready to be where we need to be emotionally, mentally, physically. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. I have one more question. Do you have anything, Lauren? No, I'm, I'm good. I feel like we've covered so much and really that's huge. Like, thanks to you, Rob, for being so open and sharing. So yeah, my mind has just kind of like exploded in a million directions in this conversation. I'm glad to hear it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I totally agree. I guess lastly, really, it would be interesting to hear one of one of or some of the changes that you would like to see when we get back to doing theater together as far as racial equity? Oh, I think one of the biggest problems that I've recognized is that the focus on diversity and inclusion has only really ever been what you see on the stage. And it has not been about who's behind the scenes. It's not been about who's directing the show, who's writing the show, whose story is being told, and who are the producers that are backing it. Who, is the, who are the audiences that are being shown this story or these stories? And so there needs to be this worldwide conversation or national conversation, however you want to put it, um, about this industry and all industries really but if we're you know zooming in on theater it's like we we really need to figure out how to be true allies to our fellow BIPOC artists and i think a huge part of that and it's very tough for a lot of white artists to hear is that one of the best things you can do to be an ally is to provide a space not inhabit a space, right? A lot of people want to feel that, ch- like they like that they are making the change. Like, oh, like I'm gonna I'm gonna direct a show that has a cast full of BIPOC actors. But guess what? The leader of that show is still a white person. Yep. We need to see, especially BIPOC women, BIPOC trans people. Right, we need to see a we need to see people of different uh, of different abilities, right? Differently abled people, um, and and it's been severely lacking in our industry of inclusion. I'll put in quotation marks, mm-hmm. and I look forward to hopefully seeing that we walk away from this pandemic with a newfound recognition of our own contributions to the injustices within the systems, right? Because I have them too, you know, we all do. Every single person has a different level of privilege 
in this business. And we need to all recognize that privilege. And then we need to use that privilege to provide better access for others. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Well, Robert, I want to thank you so much for coming on Positive Creativity. This has been truly, I've learned so much about you, meeting you in this <laughs> crazy virtual world. Yes. <laughs> so honored to have heard your story and your insights um, and excited to see what's going to happen in the new year with the convention coming up. So, and congratulations to you too. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I'm really, really glad that I got the time to speak with both of you. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on. You know that I adore you. And I just so appreciate you taking the time to come on this platform and share your story and your thoughts and ideas. Thank you, Alyssa. I love you. I love you. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. We always love hearing from you. You can email us at positivecreativitypodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at positivecreativitypodcast. And for more info on our guest today, please view the show notes. Join us next time on Positive Creativity Podcast.